Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Like Luke said, my name is Taylor, and uh, if I haven't got a chance to meet you, I would love to, so come say hi after uh, our gathering here. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here on the team, and um, if you're newer here, trying to get uh, connected, I'd love to help you along that process. Um, the big idea of our series here, which we're calling Transformation, which is very straightforward, very simple, uh, is that when we think about life with Jesus, that life with Jesus is not merely a ticket to heaven and then a list of do's and don'ts for the rest of your life. That actually what we're invited into is this eternal life that is, yes, eternal in the sense of it lasting forever, but also eternal in the sense that it is an, an eternal kind of life. That what God is doing in us through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit is he's transforming us to be the kind of women and men that we were always meant to be. The kind of us that God designed us to be originally that has, because of our each in our own unique flavor, uh, because of our sin, has been corrupted and distorted and and we've needed a rescuer in Jesus. And yet Jesus is providing that rescue and that transformation, not merely a new destination for eternity. That we're becoming new kind of people. And so we're looking at scripture over the, over the course of a few weeks to see what are the big areas of, uh, and, and kind of ingredients that God works in us toward to produce that transformation in the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week, uh, Todd talked about belief, and his big idea was that our beliefs shape our actions. Our belief shapes our life. And not just our intellectual beliefs or what we would check on a theology quiz or something like that, but our actual foundational functional beliefs shape who we are and who, are we, who we are becoming. And so now we're looking at belonging. And and the power of community, we're calling it the mysterious power of community, in shaping us to become the kind of men and women that we were always meant to be. So we're going to be in John chapter 15, verses 9 to 17. If you guys have your own Bibles or, or phones you want to pull that up on, uh, you can read along with me. Um, I'm just going to read aloud so you can just listen as well if you prefer that. Uh, I'm going to pray and ask that the Spirit of God would speak to us, and uh, we'll see what he has to say. So John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17, these are the words of Jesus uh, for our whole passage here, recorded by the gospel writer John, and, uh, and we uh, will dive right in. So John chapter 15, starting in verse 9, Jesus speaking, as the Father has loved me, says Jesus, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that, so, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask in my father, my father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. That's God's word for us this morning, recorded by the gospel writer John in his own language and style and cultural context, but inspired by the Spirit of God. And every time we open up God's word, he has something to say. So let's ask right now that the Spirit of God would continue to speak to us, to open up our hearts, to receive and to hear it. Would you guys pray with me? Uh, Lord, we love you. And uh, we're grateful for your grace. We're grateful 
that you love every single person in this room, and you do. You love every single person in this room. You know us inside and out. You know us better than we know ourselves, and uh, you're speaking to us right now through your word. Um, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are living and active. You speak through your word, and we pray that you give us open hearts to hear it. Pray, God, that... um, Wherever we're coming from, whether we have been following you for a long time or whether we're not even sure if we believe any of this, that you would have a fresh word for every single one of us. And I pray, God, that you wouldn't just give us information in our heads and little factoids that we can put in our back pocket to pull out later, but actual transformation in the heart as we encounter you. So we pray, God, Holy Spirit, would you come? And uh, we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is not an overstatement at all to say that we live in the most individual, individualistically-minded time and place in history. Uh, there's a continuum that sociologists and anthropologists will use to analyze uh, different cultural contexts, and one of the continuums that they use is this uh, spectrum of collectivism on one end and individualism on the other. Maybe you are familiar with this if you've ever taken any kind of cultural anthropology class or something like that. I don't know, maybe something even less sophisticated sounding than that. Just the idea of some cultures, when they think of identity and they th- when a person thinks of themselves on one end, on the collectivist end, a person thinks of themselves in their place in the group. So their primary sense of identity is in their tribe, their family, their broader culture, their city, location, whatever. But they think of themselves as existing as one of many in a group. That's the collectivism spectrum. On the other end, there's the individualism spectrum. And when a person thinks of themselves that's native to one of these cultures, their primary way of thinking about themselves is stuff about themselves. Personality type, what you do for a living, uh, your interests, hobbies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Your sense of self is individualistic. Now, uh, there's different ways of kind of categorizing or measuring these sorts of things, but... uh, many researchers have came to the conclusion, have noted, that when they're kind of ranking the most collectivist or individualistic cultures, that the United States is the most individualistic culture on planet Earth. So one prominent research group that measures um, different cultural dimensions, it's a group called the Hostage Insights Group. I think they're based in the Netherlands, but they they basically put together different uh, profiles for various cultures around the world for people doing international business. Anyway. So they have a a measurement for individualism versus collectivism. On their ranking, on their measures, the United States is like off the charts, the most individualistic culture. So for example, in their metric, uh, out of 100, the United States is a 91 on the individualism scale. For comparison, Canada, our sweet, sweet neighbors to the north, who are also highly individualistic, one of the most individualistic cultures in the world, rank an 80 on the individualism scale. We're a 91. Canada, also very individualistic, is an 80. Brittany can tell you all about that. (laughs) Wonderful, sweet Canadian. Um, And uh, my point is this. My point is not so that we can all chant USA, USA, because we beat Canada at something. Sorry, Brittany. Um, It's so that we can have a growing awareness of the air that we breathe. Individualism is the air that we breathe. And it is itself neither morally good nor morally bad. It comes with strengths and weaknesses, but it's not a moral issue. It's just a, it's just a, a way that we think of ourselves and find our place in the world, the way that our culture imagines life. It's neither morally good nor morally bad, though it comes with strengths and weaknesses, and we need to be aware of the assumptions that we're making that we don't even realize that we're making unless we think about it. 
when it comes to navigating what it means to follow Jesus and become the kind of people he's inviting us to become. Because even though it's neither morally good nor morally bad, it does have ramifications for how we live our lives, how we imagine that life works. Um, And I think one of the fruits of our high level of individualism is that we're a culture that is prone towards isolation. Uh, There's a a number of um, studies that have looked at this, and and we could all just uh, think of our own personal experiences, the way that we see this bear out. But rates of loneliness have been on the rise, at least in, in, in terms of experienced people reporting feeling lonely uh, for, for decades now. But one recent study found that um, the rates of loneliness have dramatically increased over the last decades, and that in particular, the number of Americans who report zero close personal confidants. In other words, I don't have anyone in my life that I could easily tell something deeply personal in my life to. The number of Americans who report zero very close personal confidants has tripled since the 1980s. And that rates of expressed loneliness, felt loneliness for people under 40 in particular is rising at the most dramatic rate. We're a culture prone to this kind of isolation. And I think this combination of hyper-individualism on the one hand and rising loneliness on the other leaves us at an interesting place, an interesting felt experience. Uh, For some of us, we actually do have really deep, beautiful connections. We're a church, Luke just said it earlier, one of, one of our hallmark things that we prize and value is we say that we're a highly, hopelessly relational church. And we tend to do community pretty well around here. And so some of us have these deep roots and deep, meaningful senses of connection, but because individualism is the air that we breathe, without intentional focus, we can quickly lose sight of what Jesus' vision and purpose for belonging is in the first place. We've got the connection, but we can quickly forget why Jesus invites us to that connection in the first place. For others of us, maybe we long for connection. It's something that we feel a lack of in our life right now but we're so used to being a relational free agent. We're so used to that being the air that we breathe. And now maybe even post-COVID, after life was necessarily disrupted for a stretch of time, we're so unused to being reconnected that the idea of true belonging, true community, really knowing others and being known seems overwhelming or hopelessly difficult. My point is, with all that in mind, as we come to this passage of scripture in John chapter 15, 9 to 17, Jesus is inviting us to the kind of community we long for. And what he does through it, according to this text, is surprising. It's not just something we have because it's nice. It's something transformative. We're seeing that one of the necessary ingredients to transformation is the kind of belonging that Jesus is teasing out for us in this text. So as we dive into John chapter 15, 9 to 17, I think Jesus' teaching here, specifically through the lens of belonging in particular, teases out two questions for us. It teases out what Jesus' kind, kind of community looks like in the first place. So what does Jesus' kind of community look like amongst us? And secondly, what would Jesus' kind of community do in us? What it actually looks like and what it actually does in us. 
And so we'll just dive right in along the lines of those two questions. But first, answering this question, what does Jesus's kind of community look like? We long for connection and community. Even our rugged individual selves here on the West Coast of the United States, we love the idea of connection. But what would it actually look like in Jesus's mind? What does Jesus envision for his people? Because Jesus is not just rescuing individuals to have a personal relationship with God, but he's also creating a new spiritual family who are following him together. So what does he envision by that? Well, first, I think it's really important for us to say that when Jesus invites us to his kind of community, he's not inviting us to this kind of perfectly curated, Instagram-ready, idealized college brochure version of community. Because I think when we, when we think about community, if we could just kind of wave the magic wand and have any kind of community that we would want for. Like, I don't know. You just could create anything, any kind of group of friends connection that you could possibly long for. Hagrid shows up at your door and says, you're a wizard, and then you have the magical powers to create it. What would you create? I think many of us think, when we just, our knee-jerk reaction of community is this dream of a perfectly balanced group of like-minded best friends who all bring something like unique and specific to the table that's very obvious, and you all want to spend the exact same amount of time together and doing the exact same things, and uh, it, it, everyone makes you feel cooler, but without being intimidating, right? And then there's no drama except that like little minor drama that gets all resolved like very quickly. And we have this like idea, we have, we have a sitcom, we want a sitcom. So we think of, we, we, we think of community and we're like, yes, I would love community. I'd love greater longing and connection. Where's my Joey? Where's my Chandler? Where's my Monica? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have this idealized version of community in our minds. And we need to acknowledge that what Jesus is inviting us to is not that. Jesus is inviting us something that's a little bit messier, a little bit less Instagram ready, a little bit less neat and tidy, and yet it is beautiful and exactly what we need. I love the words of um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian alive during World War II, um, was really instrumental in rallying a particular resistance segment of the German church against, um, against Nazi rule. Um, Hardcore guy, very cool. But uh, I, I, he wrote a fantastic book called Life Together. And here's what he said in Life Together. He said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. When we love our dream of community, when our goal in community is this idealized dream, we will inevitably bring a set of expectations to the people around us that they'll never be able to live up to. We'll feel dissatisfied that people aren't being what we want them to be and we'll never have the kind of community that Jesus invites us into. But when we love people, when our, when our approach to community is I'm going to love the people around me, we create community. And that's the central command in this text. John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus says this, this is my commandment, that you love one another. The thing that Jesus is inviting us to put into practice in our lives is this very simple command, you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus' vision for community gets boiled down in this very simple statement, love one another the way that I have loved you. And it's really interesting in this passage. This is a passage where Jesus is largely talking about, to use his language, abiding in him. We'll unpack that a little bit more in a bit. 
largely this passage focused on connection with him, and yet, and yet right dab in the center of it is this command that you love one another, that we love one another as Jesus has loved us. But he doesn't go on and give us a list of specifics about what that's going to mean. He doesn't say, I've loved one another as I've loved you, so here are your 10 action steps that you need to do in order to love one another well. But what he does do is go on to tell us how he has loved us. He, sh- he says, love one another as I've loved you, and here's how I've loved you. It's, it's this beautiful way of leaving us a portrait of his kind of love to spark our imagination for what it might look like in a community like ours. And so as we look through what his kind of love is like, I think Jesus is inviting us to use our imagination of what it would look like to apply that kind of love to one another. And so as, as I've been um, just studying this text and thinking through Jesus' kind of love, the way he describes it from verse 13 on, here are a few thoughts that I've had as I've been looking at Jesus' kind of love and what it would look like amongst us. And we're thinking specifically now, what does it mean for us to be this kind of community? What does this kind of community look like amongst us? And the first thing Jesus says in in describing his kind of love in verse 13, he says, love one another the way I've loved you in verse 12. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus is, of course, alluding to what's going to happen later in the Gospel of John, where Jesus goes to the cross taking on my sin and your sin, the sin of humankind into himself, not because we bring anything to the table with God, but specifically because we don't, because we've rebelled against him and he's doing for us better than we deserve. He's giving us grace. Grace is a really churchy word, but it just simply means unmerited blessing, undeserved blessing. And, and this, is the, this is the posture that God has towards us that he doesn't relate to us on the basis of our performance, unless we want to, in which case it doesn't go well. Instead, he relates to us on the basis of grace, undeserved blessing. And this is the first thing that Jesus tells us about his kind of love for us, that he lays down his life for us. He gives us better than we deserve. He's unconditionally blessed us. He gives us Grace, And I believe we're to be a community, first and foremost, of grace for one another. Grace to one another. And I think grace in a community, unconditional blessing towards each other in a community, means having an attitude amongst us that says, there's literally nothing you could ever do that would make me love you less. I'm unconditionally for you. I'm, I, you, you are unconditionally loved by me in this community, that would be what a community of grace would look like. And that's the first and foremost thing that Jesus tells us about his kind of love. I think it's to be the foundational thing for what a community of people following Jesus together is to look like, the kind of community in which we're transformed. It's that we're a community of grace. We give each other grace. And here's what grace does in a community. Grace in a community makes it safe to be our full selves. It makes it safe to bring our full selves to the table because we love the idea of authenticity. We prize the idea of authenticity in a place like the South Bay. We just want to fill up a big bathtub full of authenticity and just like soak in it until we become all pruny and wrinkled. Like we love the idea of authenticity. But unless we have a culture of grace 
unless any community has a culture of grace, any set of friend, any friendship or set of relationships has a culture of grace, you'll never have real community, even if authenticity is your goal. Because if authenticity is your goal without grace, what gets incentivized is not real authenticity, but just the appearance of authenticity. When authenticity is just another thing to perform, like it's the cool thing to do, it's the thing that you're expected and socially, socially expected to do, what you're incentivized to do is not be re- truly authentic. What you're incentivized to do is give the appearance of authenticity. And so there it can be a community that has a kind of surface-level authenticity where people seem like they're keeping it real, but in actuality, the basis of the relationships is completely performance-based. And people feel like they have to perform for one another in order to be good enough for one another. So think of like the quote-unquote candid Instagram photo, right? Where it's like candid, but really you took like 100 different shots and you like carefully curated which one it was going to be and you got the right filter and it's like, look at our sweet smiles. But like, come on, this is like a whole staged thing, right? Like that's... That's performative authenticity. It's authenticity that's authenticity in the quote-unquote authenticity in servants of performing for a, a community's expectations. In a Christian community, performative authenticity is when you know you're supposed to confess something because that's like what you're supposed to do in your small group is you're supposed to have like something that you're vulnerable about. But you don't really feel all the way safe to do it because there's this underlying culture of performance and needing to perform with one another. So you give a little, you, you, you confess something that's safe to confess. It's not the thing that's like really burdening you. It's not the thing that you actually need to get off your chest. It's just the thing that's safe to do it or the thing that makes you look good to confess. It's like the, it's like, it's like the job interview question of like, what's your greatest weakness? And you're like, man, I just, I really work too hard. You know, I'm just such a hard worker. It's like in, in a community in that there is not a culture of grace, even if we want authenticity, we'll never really have it. And what we might actually produce is fake authenticity, which of course is ironically not authenticity at all. But when our goal is grace, when the actual dynamic of a relationship is there's nothing that you could ever do that would make me love you less, it is safe. It's safe to be real. It's safe to be your true unfiltered self. It's safe to confess sin. It's safe to be vulnerable. It's safe. And Jesus is saying, no greater love has anyone than this than they lay down their life, my friends. My kind of love is a grace-based love. Your kind of love is to be a grace-based love for each other too. Then he goes on in verse 14. He says, you are my friends. That's nice. If you do what I command you. And so he's laid down his life for us, not because of our performance. In fact, the opposite, in spite of, uh, because of our lack of performance, he gives us better than we deserve and he's unconditionally committed to us. And yet he also says, I'm calling you to do what I command you to do. He says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. And so we, be, we not only need a culture of grace, that's our foundational baseline approach is a posture of grace. And yet we also are to call each other to following the way of Jesus. Every single one of us needs to both give and receive corrective truth. We need in, in, within a community that is safe, within a community in which we're unconditionally loved, there are gonna be times that we need to both give and receive corrective truth. And giving and receiving corrective truth isn't just about trying to like get each other's behavior in line. 
giving and receiving corrective truth is about helping each other become the kind of person that God made us to be. It's about leading us into the sweet spot of joy in life with Jesus. I was reflecting on this this last week. Um, There was a a point in my mid-20s where I was really struggling with insecurity. And I was kind of just venting to a friend at at one point um, about some stuff that was going on in my life and some some things that were bothering me and I was feeling insecure about. And what I wanted out of the conversation was just to, like, say some stuff that I needed to say. And he was a super gracious person, listened, asked follow-up questions, incredible guy. But... um, after I had kind of finished talking and he had asked me a few follow-up questions, uh, he just kind of paused and he said, you know, it sounds like you're looking for security in some really insecure places. And I think you're always going to feel insecure when your source of security is insecure. And I was like, I was just trying to vent. (laughs) Like, you know, um, I wasn't... (laughs) I wasn't here to like be told that like the foundation of my identity is kind of fragile. Um, <laughs> but him taking the risk to tell me that opened the door to all kinds of joy in Jesus because it, it got me down a path of really thinking through where am I looking for security? And he was calling me to faithfulness to Jesus. And whatever kind of corrective truth we might need to give one another on occasion, it's not all the time, it's not every conversation, you're like, okay, um, great to see you, I'm glad we got coffee. Here are the 10 things I'm gonna need you to work on. No, that's not that at all. But in appropriate ways, over significant things, not insignificant things, we're within the context of a commitment of grace to one another. We both, we, each one of us at times in our lives is going to both need to give and receive corrective truth. We are to call each other to obedience. Uh, another, uh, another element that we see here of what this looks like in a community like ours is I think we see the, the, this vision of, um, of commitment to one another. In John 15, 16, as he goes on, he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And he's unpacking his kind of love, and he says, my kind of love is a love where I chose you. It's a choosing love. And I don't think we can love each other well unless there is a level of commitment to one another, that we know that we're going to show up. I know that those in my life are going to show up for me. They know that I'm going to show up for them. And, I, and it's really important to clarify here, this, this isn't to say that there, uh, I mean, specifically as we're talking about a church community here, this doesn't mean that it's wrong to leave a church community for all kinds of various reasons. It doesn't mean that you have to get involved in everything. In fact, Jesus, what Jesus is inviting us to is fundamentally relational, so it's not commitment to specific programs or specific ministry efforts, but rather specific people to commitment to a community. And those programs and those ministry efforts can help facilitate that community, and it's stuff that we can commit to together and get excited about. But fundamentally, what Jesus is talking about is a commitment to people. He's inviting us to love one another by by committing to show up for one another. And then finally, I think um, we see here that um, Jesus' kind of community is a community that lives on mission together. He says in verse 16, he says, um, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That 
that my kind of love, Jesus is saying, is a love that produces a new kind of life, and it's going. It's there's a there's a, a goingness. Uh, that's not a word, but you know what I mean. That 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 bearing of fruit is out in the world as we as we spread the redemptive love of God, living the values of the kingdom of heaven in the world around us, making the world in a small way more like the kingdom of heaven because we're present there, living Jesus, living with Jesus, and following Him. We're to be a community that's on mission together. We care about the things that Jesus cares about in the world. We, we get excited for, the, for Mia and Francois, and we get behind them and help them in this, the ministry effort uh, that, that, that they're doing with uh, kids that have been abandoned in South Africa. We, we have an awesome uh, missions and outreach team that does all kinds of wonderful things here locally uh, in and around the L.A. area. Each one of us has things we're excited about and passionate about that we want to see be more like the kingdom of heaven in the world, and we live as a community that gathers together but then also scatters out on mission. Um, years ago, I was a, um, part of a, a leadership training program that was led by someone, that, uh, a, a guy who was a professor at the Air Force Academy. Um, and he, his um, particular field was leadership development, so he taught leadership classes for op- officers at the Air Force Academy. And um, his sticky statement, his whole theory of leadership that has stuck with me years later and will stick with me for the rest of my life, was uh, his statement is that every single person needs a safe community to live with and an unsafe cause to live for. A safe community to live with and an unsafe cause to live for, that's what we're invited to with life with Jesus. We have a safe community that we're a part of that's calling us to be the, the, the Christ-like version of ourselves, but in the context of the safety of grace. But then there's also this cause of Jesus that we're invited to live a part of also. And it's risky, it's unsafe, it's worth risking for. And that's the kind of community we're to be, a community that lives on mission together. And we have bread and butter rhythms of doing this as a community. The, the grounded groups, well, of course, that's why you were here gathered on a Sunday. Uh, we've got the men's and women's retreats that were awesome. And all those things are things that would be great steps for some of us. But the, the, the point here is that it's not just about the programs or the structures. It's about the people sharing life together. Love one another as I have loved you. That's what Jesus' vision for our kind of community would be. His kind of love played out as we give it to one another. And that leads us to where we'll close, which is the second question. What does Jesus' kind of community do in us? If it looks like a community of grace and calling one another to obedience and a certain level of commitment to one another and mission together, what does that actually do in us? What role does that play in transformation? And there's a tension here because the essence of following Jesus really is about following Jesus, not about community activity or church activity. And yet, life with Jesus is not just a personal relationship with Jesus. We love, that's, you know, that's a phrase that we love because we're a highly individualistic culture. So we love to say it's just about a personal relationship with Jesus. And it's foundationally about a personal relationship with Jesus. But it's also about a shared life in following Jesus. And getting off track in that way is not something new, by the way. One of my favorite little tidbits from church history is a tidbit from the 400s AD, which you didn't think you needed this morning, but I'm going to give it to you. In the 400s AD, there's a guy named Simeon the Stylite. And Simeon the Stylite wanted to be so close with God that what he decided to do was crawl on top of a literal pillar, like think of like a Greek, like a column, like in a Greek ruins or whatever, climbed to the top of a pillar and stayed there for 37 years 
I have so many logistical questions about this, not the least of which is how did the bathroom work? Like, uh, you're on top of a pillar. There's not much square footage there, you know? Like, how does this all work logistically? I have no idea. Is there a bucket? Like, I don't know. I have no idea how this all worked. But he, in his imagination, closeness with God was being as far away from other humans as imaginatively possible, right? Like, where can I go where no one will follow me? On top of this tiny, like, three-by-three-foot square space, literally raised above the ground away from everywhere else. That's where I'm going to get away from. That's where I'm going to be with God is way the heck away from other people. Now, of course, there's a beauty uh, and an invitation of rhythms of silence and solitude in life with Jesus. We need time alone. We need, we need to connect with him on an individual basis. And yet what Jesus says here is fascinating. This is what has really been uh, standing out to me as I've been thinking about this passage recently. Because think about his logic here. Let's, we'll just walk through the text. Um, we'll, we'll go uh, in, from verse 10 to 12. He says, he's, t- he's talking about abiding in his love. So transformation happens when we're personally encountering and experiencing the love of God for sinners like you and me. That's where we're transformed, when we're in the presence of God, knowing deep in our hearts that we're loved by God despite the worst of us. That's how we're transformed. So he says, you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. And in this sense, abide um, means something like to live in the reality of, to live as if it's true, to experience it personally, to be connected to it. Right? So you'll be connected to my love. You'll have the experienced reality of my love if you keep my commandments, just like I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This, thing, these, this I speak to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another the way that I have loved you. So think about the logic here. You'll abide in my love. You'll live in the reality of my love when you keep my commandments. And this is my commandment, that you love one another. Now, um, just to clarify, Jesus doesn't mean that if you disobey my commandments, I don't love you anymore. He specifically doesn't mean that. The, the same person that wrote the Gospel of John, John uh, in, in 1 John 4.10 said, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his, sin to be an atoning, sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus is kind of love is not based on our obedience to his command. So he's not saying, if you stop obeying, I stop loving you. He's saying, you'll live in the experienced reality of my love to the degree that you live my kind of life. And the commandment that he calls us to obey is that we love one another. So you will experience my love as you love one another In other words, Jesus is saying, you will live in the reality of my love, the love that transforms you when you love one another. So how does loving one another translate to experiencing the love of God personally and therefore being transformed? I think there's actually a beautiful mystery about the way that God has interwoven our minds and our bodies and our spirits um, th- there's a, a, this is a, a, a really cool little factoid that I learned in a nonverbal communication class in college. If you smile, so hold it, like you, you hold it, force a smile right now. Everyone force 60 seconds, you hold a smile, hold it for 60 seconds, and then you all look like doofuses and I'm up here looking at it, it's great. Um, if you hold a smile for 60 seconds, regardless of how you're feeling, your mood will improve because there's, there's something about the way that God has uh, has 
created our bodies, that our minds and our bodies are interwoven in this really beautiful way. And so, like Todd taught last week, our beliefs inform our actions, but also to a degree, our actions can shape our beliefs and our experience of those beliefs. And so, when we act like someone following Jesus, in other words, when we love one another, we actually experience the reality of what it's like to be loved by Jesus, to be someone who follows Jesus. And so, there's something about obeying Jesus's commands and then experiencing the blessed life of life with Jesus that's this really beautiful interwoven design of our minds and our bodies and our spirits. And also, I think that in the mystery of God's beautiful design, God chooses to reveal himself to us and show his grace to us through people. That there's something, he's wanting us to participate in what he wants to do in each other's lives insofar as he chooses to reveal himself to us through each other. Again, I love the words of of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He puts it like this. He says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. In other words, there's something not quite sufficient about just telling yourself truth. We need to tell ourselves truth. But God shows up in a special way when someone who we know loves us and has been with God, proclaims the gospel over us in the specific areas that we need to hear it. I think about the the ways I've most powerfully experienced the grace of God in my life, and one comes to mind. I've told this this silly story before of um, when I was in college, I got fired from a job because I lied to my boss, and the story involves a chicken suit and almost getting someone deported, and it's this whole thing. Um, And... The moment after I got fired, uh, I, felt, I, I felt appropriate guilt for having done something wrong. I also felt this overwhelming sense of shame that was very much not from the Lord. Um, and it, this shame was just this like huge monster sitting on my back as I just felt terrible. And I, I, walked, I walked away from this conversation with my boss where she fired me. And there's a park across the street. And I walked over to a bench, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, I'm an idiot. And I was, you know, just feeling, uh, I was just in a spiral of ungodly and unhelpful thoughts. And as it just so happened, a friend of mine um, walked into this park at the same time. And he could see that I was clearly not well and asked me how I was doing, and I spilled my guts. And I don't remember his words, but I will forever remember that as he proclaimed grace over me, it was like, the power of heaven coming into earth with the grace of God in my life in the specific way that I needed it. And there's something that God has called us to that is not just about the mechanics of accountability and encouragement for better behavior. I think we need to recover the idea that we're mediators of the grace of God to each other. That God has so created community that we're not just telling each other true things. We're not just encouraging one another along the way, but in our words, speaking the gospel to each other, we're actually embodying the presence of God to one another. 
we're actually embodying the love of God to one another as the spirit of God is at work amongst us. We have like an almost priestly responsibility and calling to one another. And so being transformed through communities, not just about the mechanics, it's about God working through each other as we choose to love one another the way that we see Jesus love us in this passage. And I think the reality here is that at least to some degree, this sounds really good, right? Like having the kind of community and connection. I mean, maybe like if, you know, our unfiltered thought is I could do without the like accountability side of it. <laughs> um, at least some, sometimes we might feel that way. But we long for a deeper community and connection, at least at some level. And yet, I think for as many of us as in this room, there's probably as many thoughts swirling around our heads about why this sounds either unattainable or unattractive, or some reason why it's just not for us right now. I mean, maybe just the idea of shifting life into this kind of uh, involvement in community and showing up for each other, maybe that's a huge paradigm shift. We live in a culture that prizes relational flexibility and being able to make decisions at the last minute and hold, I mean, if you've ever tried to plan anything, any get together of friends and you're just like, Oh my gosh, can, I, can, can someone just say, yes, they're coming, you know, like, and we need to pick a date and a time, right? Like, it, it can be hard because we live in a community that prizes flexibility. And so I say that with no shame whatsoever, but maybe it's just a big, it's just a big shift to think of ourselves as belonging in community like this. For others of us, maybe we've been deeply wounded in a, in a community of people following Jesus. We were, we were betrayed, horrible and ugly things were spoken to us or about us. Maybe we've just had terribly painful experiences in a community following Jesus. For others, maybe it just seems like there's no space in life for anything beyond just survival mode, right? Like you're a young parent, or work is really busy, or your kids have tons of activities, or whatever the case may be. And I think, first and foremost, we need to say that what the Spirit might be inviting any one of us is going to be different than the person sitting next to us. And it's very okay to take a baby step. It is very okay to just say, all right, Lord, I have, I've got this little, little to, to press further into, into belonging. And I'm just going to be faithful with that little that I can give. And that's very much okay. But secondly, I think we need to see that in this text, we not only see a vision for what Jesus wants to do in our lives, we see the resources to be able to do it. Because the whole thing is based on the opening verse that we read in John 15, 9, Jesus saying, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. The resources to take the kind of step towards deeper community when it feels hard is the love of God to begin with. It's to see in Jesus and especially in his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf that the God of the universe, the God who created quasars and galaxies in the Pacific Ocean, loves you personally so much that he was willing to let it cost him. That he entered into human history as Jesus of Nazareth, that he hung on a cross for your sin and my sin, that he endured the agony of the penalty of our sin so that we could be reunited with him forever. And when we see that kind of love, when we see a God who initiates love for us like that, we see a God who's willing to love us at cost to himself like that, when we know that we're loved by God deep in our souls, it frees us to be able to love other people. 
It frees us to be able to take risks in loving other people because we know that the most important thing that we need, love, the love of God, we have, and we have it in spades. It frees us to be able to love other people when they're being hard to love because we know that we were loved when we were hard to love. It frees us. And so as we close here, and I'm going to invite the, the band to come up. And I went too long. I always do. Um, we're going to create some space to reflect on the love of God played out for us on the cross. And so right now, um, I'm going to pray. And uh, before we, um, we finish up here and, and take communion to close, I'm just going to guide us to um, have some space to listen and to hear and to let the spirit continue to speak if there's anything specific that we each need to hear as individuals. And so right now, just pray along with me and I'll just guide us into a time of, of listening and opening up our hearts to see if there's anything specific that God wants us to, to hear. So right now, um, Lord, we love you. And we're so grateful for your grace. Grateful that... Um, because of Jesus, any of anyone in Jesus, there's literally nothing we could do that would make you love us less. There's nothing that could separate us from your love. There's nothing that could cast us out from you. We thank you for the safety of that. I pray that we'd be, learn to be a kind of a, the kind of community here that um, that you envision, a kind of community where we love one another the way that Jesus loved us. And Lord, I pray that we'd be transformed in the process not just through the mechanics of accountability and encouragement and that sort of thing, but in the actual experienced presence of God and the experienced reality of the love of God as we love one another. Would you teach us what that looks like, Lord? So right now, um, just have a moment to listen and ask God uh, in, in whatever words feel comfortable to you in the quiet of your own heart. Just Lord, is there something specific you want me to hear from today? We pray, come Holy Spirit, would you speak? grateful for your grace, grateful for the kind of life you call us to, grateful that you're patient with us, grateful that um, you don't relate to us based on whether or not we've performed well enough, but your love for us is unconditional. And I pray that you would help us to believe that deep in our hearts, to experience it deep in our hearts in a way that transforms us us to mediate that kind of love to one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Taylor. So now we um, come to the table, as is our custom, and um, just really enjoy this time where we get to take and reflect on all that Jesus has done for us. And I mean, here we see the, the beauty, the epitome of of this life of community demonstrated in, in who Jesus is. I mean, we're
where else do we see this love that has the preeminence of grace than at the cross? Where he truly is the one who lays down his life for his friends. Where else do we see the, like, the obedience that Jesus is calling us into than the one who perfectly obeyed the Father? At the cross, at the table, this is where we get to see, reflect, and be changed by all that Jesus is and all that he's inviting us into. And it's such a, a marvelous and wonderful thing. Um, so as the elements are getting passed around, I just invite you to continue in that reflection. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread sitting with his friends and he broke it and gave to each of his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. And in a similar manner, he took the cup pass it to each of his disciples and said, this is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. And in doing so, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you all stand with me as we end in worship?